In this episode, Colin Redimer and I talk about the crisis of modern education. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome, Colin. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Wyatt. Yeah, well, it's fun to be able to uh, talk over the internet like this, get a little bit, little bit of a sort of face-to-face time and be able to talk about interesting things. Uh, I'm interested to talk to you, and we were conversing over email and just before this. You're really interested in education, ongoing education, what that actually looks like and what the future is for education. So now that's a bit abstract and we'll, we'll make it more concrete later, but I think a lot of people are interested in this, especially in religious circles, but even beyond that now. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, I think coronavirus has help people think through what education is and should look like because you have kids at home doing education, their parents are seeing it and just perhaps thinking more about it. So I think this is a relevant and interesting conversation. But before we get into it, um, would you mind just kind of telling us who you are, like your education, family, whatever you want to say, just whatever could introduce us to you in in about a minute. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm Colin Redimer. I'm the vice president of the Davenant Institute, and I'm a professor at St. Mary's College. in the philosophy and English and uh, great books department. And I've been teaching at St. Mary's for about 10 years. Um, I've got a master's in theology, master of fine arts, and I'm almost done with uh, my PhD at Aberdeen, University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Uh, I've got three kids of my own. So I'm still sort of finishing out my education while I'm, while I'm right. you know, handling my own kids' education. Uh, we, we live in Oakland, California. So uh, who's your advisor? for your PhD? Michael Laughlin, actually. Uh, okay. So it, particularly if, if people uh, follow the Davenant Institute, we, uh, our editor, Anzi Kamel, just published a piece by him in our Ad Fontes magazine. Okay, very good. Um, so, so, and your PhD in philosophy, what's your dissertation topic? I'm writing about uh, the, the question of friendship, and we're trying to puzzle through uh, whether Aristotle's theory of friendship works on its own, and, and I would say it doesn't. Um, there, there, there are internal problems to it, as beautiful as it is. I mean, I, you won't, you can't find somebody who loves Aristotle more than I do. Um, you know, I'm an Aristotelian the way some people are Marxists, uh, <laughs> and um, the 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 problems are many. Um, and ultimately, you you can see in Christian theology solutions to central problems that Aristotle sets up both for his ethics and his politics, um, to say nothing of the metaphysics that's operating behind that. And, and I'm trying to explore uh, that issue as, it, as you see it transition from the ancient Greco-Roman w- world into the early Christian world, specifically just because you know they always tell you you have to focus more and more and more. Um, I'll, be, I'll be tracing that theme from Aristotle uh, into Augustine. Okay. I just talked to someone, well, just recently on a, a Augustine and friendship, uh, which is like a helpful, it was more broad than I think what you're getting at, but just the idea of the importance of friendship more or less than the tech, technicalities, if I remember right. Uh, does, is it Aristotle who talks about, uh, it's like two souls, one body or two bodies, one soul's friendship, or is that just some later tradition? Yeah. Uh, so friendship is, no, Aristotle wouldn't say two souls, one body. Um, and, and partially it's because of the conception of the soul that, that you have from Aristotle, right? The soul is the form okay. of the body, as he says uh, in De Anima. So, but what friendship is, is, um, and I think what you're referring to in Aristotle is that in friendship, you see the, the friend becomes the mirror for the self. So in a true friendship, um, 
you're seeing an image for yourself. So when I tell, when I talk to students about friendship, uh, for example, I will tell them, you know, it's actually quite hard to come to an understanding of who you are, what you look like to other people. So if you're trying to figure that out, Aristotle's advice is look around at your friends, tally up how you think they look to other people, and then just read that list back to yourself. That's probably how you look to other people, right? Your, your friends are telling you something about yourself, the people you spend your time with, um, because you're focused on things that you want to do together, things that you find pleasurable, things that you find useful. That's, that's what brings you into proximity with these people. Interesting. We'll have to look into that more. I, um, I don't remember reading Aristotle on friendship. I think I've might have the anima somewhere on my shelf, but I'm sure it's on my computer somewhere too. It's in uh, the Nicomachean Ethics. Okay, yeah, I have that. That's eight nine. I think the like an, uh, I think it's like a Cambridge English translation of been. Yeah, so that's something I've been thinking through a while. Like kind of the whole idea of virtue ethics, and obviously he's important to that history. And Alistair McIntyre is kind of the more modern mm-hmm. thinker on that, as well as many others. Uh, okay, that is really interesting. I think friendship probably does relate to education to some degree absolutely um so we can maybe use that as a segue oh, bring uh, you, me back we'll, we'll have another one we'll talk about okay. friendship for an hour yeah yeah i'd actually like that it's a really fascinating topic to me i think more than just the abstract idea of friends but what that actually looks like and what one of the things i've started i mean we're probably somewhat similar in kind of age category and, and family setting is like finding friends at this stage in life is actually hard it's interesting to me, like I, so when I went to seminary, I basically was a monk, meaning I lived in a house with seven other seminary students yeah. and for like, I think it was like two years and it was kind of like this communal living environment. And those are actually some of my best friends today, like still after whatever it is, like a decade or something like that. Yeah. Uh, is it that long? Yeah, I guess <laughs> something to that effect anyway. And, um, so wouldn't I start seminary? 2006, maybe? Seven? Um, so it, it's really interesting to think through what that can look like. And it, I think that actually helped my education a lot because we're always talking through things. What we're learning, how to work so it out. They're passionate about it too. It's yep. bringing you together. You're, you're forming one another. Uh, and we're, yeah. We're and, all in and, Christian and ministry at the you, same time too. You sort, of, you sort of stay together, right, as, as a cohort. Um, and in Aristotle's observation, you know, grouch, uh, old people don't really make new friendships, uh, certainly not as easily. Um, and, and so if you, if, you, if you miss the boat in some way, making these important, these deep friendships where you're really trying to form one another towards a good, um, it, it can be quite hard to do later on because you move into a season of life where utility takes precedence. You know, in, in midlife, you really need to make money. Um, you have to find some way of raising these kids so that they're sensible adults, um, you know, making your name in the world. And, um, and so the people that you make friends with, for example, I think in mid-career, um, those people are our are, are, are business colleagues, right? They're, they're contacts. Um, and once you retire and you're no longer in the usefulness game anymore, um, it, most people who retire report that they lose touch with a significant swath of people who they used to feel quite close to. Well, why is that? It's because they're not focused on the goal of making the company, you know, money anymore or whatever, uh, selling, you know, and, and buying from one another anymore. Um, yeah. huh. it'd be quite hard. So I would say the the encouragement to, to young folks, if they are listening to this is when you do find yourself in that scenario where you're a monk in a seminary or whatever situation you find yourself in, um, really focus on, on what is the good? 
What's, you know, what's the good thing we want to aim our lives towards and then stay in touch with those people. I mean, even if it costs you something, stay in touch with those people because you're not going to be able to come back and get those relationships back again. I want to repeat one thing you said and then expand on it a little bit because it's super useful. So if you're working in a company together with a common goal, make the best iPhone or whatever it is or in this phone. Yeah. yeah you feel really uh, united with folk, but once you retire or move on, because that good is so temporary or merely for like the, whatever it is, economic gain in retirement, you could probably become really distraught or distressed or, or lonely, which I think a lot of people are like, Absolutely. because the goal is not friendship as such or virtue as such, but it is a temporary goal for a specific company. And then the expansion is, I think a lot of people, at least in the kind of millennial Gen Z category or will be Gen Z, we move so often for jobs in the gig economy mm-hmm. that it becomes really hard to create long and lasting friendships. In fact, they almost become exchanges. Okay, you're a friend for two or three years in your job, you're great on social media, blah, 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 and you work together, then you move on to the next set of friendships and you're, you're teaching yourself that friendship is temporary and transient, which uh, I suspect is a big problem. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and so one of the things that I think can solve this, at least intellectually, like I, I'm, you, know, you study Aristotle for hours and hours and hours, and then you come out of it and, and you're not necessarily um, practical, but you at least can explain what's going on pretty well. Um, so uh, one way to intellectually solve the problem is to realize the relationship that usefulness always has to pleasantness and so usefulness is always useful for some end other than itself. Hmm. It's never, you're, you know, you're never really just interested in usefulness so that you can get more usefulness so that you can get more usefulness. You're interested in, in acquiring money, right? So that you can accomplish some other end, which is always in the end, some form of pleasure. Um, and it might be a virtuous, you know, a good pleasure or, or, or an unnatural pleasure. Um, but once you see that, then you realize, okay, it's good to have all these useful contacts and friendships. You know, like there's nothing wrong with that. Um, we need that in our life, but we have to make sure that we're subsuming them to some good, pleasant life that we're aiming towards. So it's fine to like aim for retirement, right? But but that's why in 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 sort of self help book speak, they say have a plan for when you retire, right? Like what's the good thing you want to accomplish and have fun doing right. in retirement? So if you just if you just kind of suddenly stop, you know, accomplishing all the goals of your life, I mean, this is why the suicide rate for for men in particular who retire. Uh, in the in the first year after retirement is is huge. There's a big spike right there, um, and I think it's partially because they, there's this sense of the realization that the usefulness was the point of itself, uh, which yeah. they know makes no sense. Yeah, there's no end, and it turns into itself and it's empty. Uh, right. Yeah. Is it? Um, I think this might be Plato and Plotinus, but possibly Aristotle. The idea that for sensible creatures, or the sens- sensible part of the soul, anyways, that pleasure and pain are kind of the two motivating factors. Is that Aristotle as well? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I will I will make the bold proclamation that Aristotle is the true Platonist. So, oh, um, is he? Do you, you, do you not like Plotinus? Plotinus? Oh, Plotinus is great. Um, but but I guess what I'm pushing back against uh, is the idea that uh, when you know if you take if you take your seminary 101, like the only philosophy course that they make you take anymore when you go to seminary. Um, yeah. And they're like, okay, here's Plato, here's Aristotle. Now let's move on to Immanuel Kant. And then like, you're done and you never touch philosophy again. Um, so uh, they're, because they're always showing you in the like, in the 30,000 foot view of Plato and Aristotle, they're, they're constantly highlighting the distinction. So Plato's really like this, right? Plato's, Plato's interested in abstractions and forms and Aristotle's really interested in the earth. 
And like, that's it. That's all you need to know about Plato and Aristotle, kid. And then if you walk away from that and you then read the, the Platonists, right, or the Platonizers, or you hear about that, you think that there's this one school of thought that comes from Plato and another school of thought that comes from Aristotle. When you read them in detail, you realize, you know, Aristotle was Plato's best student. Like, he's, he's not just, you know, he doesn't study with Plato his entire young life and then Plato dies and Aristotle's like, all right, that guy was completely wrong. I'm going to do something completely different now. Um, so, so as I try to teach these things, I think we do a better service to them and to ourselves if we read them as being closely connected to one another. Whereas Plotinus is really far from Plato, right? So who, who's got the better sense of what's going on in Plato? Are you going to trust the guy who knew him and studied with him and, and paid close attention to him and had conversations mm-hmm. with him or the guy much later on who read him? Um, well, that makes sense. And yeah, they're very closely connected. Um, I find Plato more interesting because of his myth-making. And I find Aristotle good, but also less fun, like less just fun to read in terms of like pleasure of reading, not like because yeah. he's bad or something like that. Well, We're, I don't know if you know this, but Aristotle actually did write uh, plays and myths as well, but well, we lost them. We don't have them. Okay. That's what I, I recently learned, like in the past few days, even that Aristotle, he published a ton, but we probably don't really have his actual publications. What we have is like class notes from students and things like that. and. Um, yeah, the, I mean, so there's a discussion uh, and, and about whether or not, for example, the Nicomachean Ethics is in fact Aristotle's or is it his students taking notes on his lectures. I would be of the school of thought for reasons that we probably aren't going to get into that, that it is in fact, it's not just, it's not just lecture notes. There's, they're systematically put together in, in a text that was supposed to be making sense in some ways, kind of like the Summa Theologicus. So um, if you think about what Aquinas is doing with the Summa. The point of the Summa was never that he's gonna write this and hand it to you, and you'll never talk to anyone again and be able to figure theology out, right? Um, so when we talk about lecture notes, lecture notes for me are gonna look really different from whatever it is we're talking about when we're talking about um, uh, the Nicomachean ethics. It, it was supposed to be working as a, a text, the basis of which is a conversation, but which does have internal consistency. So oftentimes when you have a lecture note argument, it makes it sound as if here's a bunch of random things, you know, that Aristotle talked about at different times that we shoved together. And I think when you read the text closely, you realize there's all this internal connection that he's making. And so it, it is kind of, it is systematic in the way that a book is, um, mm. even if it's uh, not, um, it's not systematic in a way that a modern book is. Right. There, there's a, there's a coherence to thought. And Venerable too. It's it's interesting that even many 16th century reformers wrote commentaries on it, like Vermigli, I think Melanchthon, yeah. others. <laughs> I'm the, sure the Vermigli translation, which is published by the Davenant Institute. So. Right. Just yeah. to plug that, I think it's <laughs> that started in Canada, right? In a, like McGill or something like that, the translation think, series. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So it is an interesting thing. It's it's a venerable book on on virtue and what that looks like. Pretty much every Christian for all time has found value in it, enough to even spend time commentating on it for the sake of practical reasoning in terms of ethics and all that. Um, Okay, that's incredibly helpful. So we have uh, friendship, we have Aristotle. Um, There's education happening, obviously, at the... um, So there was the the academy was Plato. What did Aristotle call his thing again? Uh, Well, there's the academy in the Lyceum. The Lyceum? yeah and um 
And I think it was Aristotle's students are called the peripatetics because they walked around. So right. Aristotle himself, right. He would walk around and talk. Was that the idea? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I have a course that I've never actually gotten to teach, but I've always dreamed of it. And I'm, and I'm, I'm someday I will end up proposing the course at St. Mary's, um, uh, Solvatur Ambulando, right. It is solved by walking. And, uh, and I, I just think there's so many interesting thinkers throughout history who really, you know, they, they value, there's something about pacing back and forth when you're worrying over a problem that it, there's like an embodied experience of thinking that goes on. You know, you're trying to find the path of thought. I can't remember who it was. Was it Kant or Nietzsche? But one of them, like, I think every morning they'd take a student and go for a walk and talk through these things. Mm-hmm. Or no, maybe it was Jean-Paul Sartre. I can't remember. So I've been listening to these like little introductions recently. So it's all bouncing around my head. Um, okay. So then let's talk about, that's kind of ancient education, uh, present education. Uh, you seem to think there's a problem with it and it's imperfect to some degree. Uh, what, what do you find lacking in modern expressions of, of education in North America anyway? Yeah. I, so anyone who's not familiar with this, uh, should should really google you know the crisis in american higher education and just see the the insane numbers of articles that are published all the time so it's one of those things where if you're inside of the world of higher education if you're a professor or a student someplace you're probably aware that this is going on but then if you're like parent or just kind of a a person living in the united states and you you sort of read this for the first time in the wall street journal or the new york times and you're like what (laughs) i had no idea this is going on um so I'm, I'm trying to be something of a, a circuit writer on behalf of the crisis in higher education and, and just ring the bell and tell people, you know, there's a, there's a problem on the, on the horizon. It comes in a bunch of different forms. So we could talk about the economics of it. Um, we could talk about the, the curriculum uh, and we could talk about the, the structure of the institutions themselves. And, and, and there's problems in all three places that are, that are related. And, and I'm sure there are other problems and there's ways of thinking of the problems I haven't even thought of yet um, to get really, brass taxi uh, in, in when you're talking economics in 2005 the US government passed a law making it virtually impossible to get out of student loan debt and so uh, af- from that point forward we saw um, student loan debt goes through the roof until as of this year I just looked it up this morning we've surpassed 1.5 trillion dollars of student loan debt in the United States tuition uh, of course once once uh, higher education starts taking off after World War II, um, in the last 50 years has gone up over 3,000%, uh, which is an insane number. Um, you know, like if, if, you could have, if you could have invested in anything in 1950 to, to make the best return possible, you, you could have done worse uh, than, than in, like buying a college and just running it for profit. Uh, and of course, we did see the rise of for-profit colleges, which should tell you something as well. Um, but you know, economics alone, I don't think is um, a sufficient enough problem to, uh, like, like just because somebody's taking out debt doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing, right? If you're taking out debt to invest in something good, that could be helpful. Um, but we're seeing the the payoff. Uh, the jobs just aren't there anymore for the students as they graduate, um, and that I think gets also to the. So there's, there's been a shift in the U.S. economy, but it also gets to the curriculum itself. You know, what are these people learning? Um, we're seeing as students are taking on more and more debt that they know they're gonna have to pay off. Uh, they're, they're treating it more as a consumer product, which it is on some level. 
And so, you know, I want to get the most for my money. Uh, there's lots of pressure. You can ask any professor at any uh, higher ed institution in the US. You'll get pressure, not just from students. You'll get it from parents. You'll get emails from lawyers. Uh, you'll, get it, you'll get contacted by your dean or, you know, a provost or something to, to just make life a little easier for that kid. And you can be, I'm, I'm sympathetic to it, frankly. Um, there, it's, there's, there's a sense in which we're sort of caught up in this crazy rat race where, you know, every bit of GPA point one is going to make a difference in whether or not I get a job on the other end. And so this is called grade inflation. So the average grade uh, in a, like 1950 was, was a C, the most commonly awarded grade, not the average, most commonly awarded grade. And then starting in like the 80s, it was a B, 80s and 90s. Um, and nowadays, the, the most common grade awarded for the last several years has been an A in US higher education. So, you know, when you have some like, you know, young person saying, well, my, my GPA, I'm, I'm brilliant, you know, I have a 3.9. Um, and, and if you're older, you know, which I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to know that a 3.9 was really hard to get actually uh, in the early 2000s, much harder than it is now. Um, you know, the, the meaning of these symbols, like what's your GPA, just kind of goes down. Uh, it's, it's not clear that that kid learned anything. I think if you talk to hiring managers, they, they've noticed this stuff too. You know, they'll avoid you if you have a major that has studies at the end of it. Um, because because on some level, what, what you've learned is something that makes you difficult to work with, um, that, that lacks a substantive content for the workforce. Um, and so you know, you've got students taking out more and more money, getting less and less. Um, and then when you look at the structure of higher education, and, uh, and then we can, we can talk about other things, but the structure of higher education itself has changed. So I, I wrote about this in uh, The American Mind last year. Uh, and <clears throat> at some point, the structure of higher education was it was just faculty. If you went there, there, there might be some maintenance people, you know, there might be some people cooking in the cafeteria, but if you talked to the president, they were somebody with a PhD who actually did teaching. Um, or, or, or if they're not teaching right now, they were teaching recently. Um, or if, they're, if they weren't teaching right now, they knew that they were going to go back to teaching uh, at, at some point after they, they leave the presidency. The point of being the president wasn't for them to be the president. The point of them being the president was managing the school well for the sake of the students. Uh, and, and this reflects the, actually the ancient de definition of tyranny um, as opposed to a proper rule. So the tyrant uh, rule, rules for his own sake as opposed to the proper ruler who rules for the benefit of the rule. So the point of being the president of a college, for example, ought to be for the sake of the students that are there and the faculty that are there. Um, we've gotten to a point now where the administration has grown. So the number of administrators has gone through the roof. And, and this will be my last point. You know, people look often, parents, because they don't know this stuff is going on, they'll be looking for what's the student to faculty ratio on this campus. And um, that's, that, that might be a good thing, right? There's some good sense in having small class sizes. But I, I, one of the things I've been saying is people ought to be looking at what's the, the faculty to administrator ratio on this campus. Um, and, and oftentimes now you've got campuses where there's more people working for the administrative angle, uh, end of things than there are for uh, the faculty. And, and this whole thing has created perverse incentives so that kids who go on to, to go get their PhD, they, they have this dream of going into higher education, they get there, they realize there's not really many jobs left there. Uh, those jobs don't actually pay very well at this point. You're better off going and becoming a public school teacher than becoming a professor. If, if your strict goal is like, I wanna make money, um, 
And so they'll oftentimes find an administrative job because that's something they can do. They could, they could raise money for the college, they can recruit students for the college, uh, and they can sort of pretend that they're in the faculty of the, of the college on some level. So there's a lot of problems. Um, and that, those are kind of three different angles of, of thinking about and looking at the problem. Yeah, that's helpful. I think a lot of people have recognized a transformation, even in small ways, the idea of greater sets of administration, greater sets of hiring of people who are not directly teachers. And it's caused, I think it's caused people some concern, but we've articulated quite well. The student debt problem is huge. The making education a transaction is huge. Of course it is, you're buying something, but making it primarily like, okay, I got this big loan, I get this, therefore I get a good job and it's all over. Um, so I think, I mean, I've seen discussions too recently where, where education is now being viewed, not so much as what you learn, but who you get to know, which is, I mean, that's important by the way, but it's just really interesting to think through like what, there are all these different versions of education today and some of them seem very unhelpful. Based on what you said, I almost think like for my kids, I tell them, go to a four-year community college for dirt cheap, live with me, and then in this, like, but also on the side, do something like what we're going to talk about the Davenant Institute for your kind of, for your arts and education. Do them in the summers and the evenings, whatever, but just go uh, get the skill that you need, whether it's business, plumbing, whatever, I don't care. Mm -hmm. uh, spend like 2000 bucks a year at a community college and then get your, your actual formation through some of these institutions that we're about to talk about, I think. Yeah, I mean, um, I think I think I think you're right. A lot of middle class families are going bankrupt or, or, or are spending, you know, way beyond their means to give their kids this sort of middle class status symbol of, OK, I got they got their bachelor's degree. Um, but but the bachelor's degree at this point isn't isn't going to benefit your kid as much as you think it is. It's not it, it isn't what it was when only, you know, 10 percent of the American population was getting them, um, you know, uh, so, which isn't to say it's valueless, you know, I, th I think there's real value there, but, um, but it's something people should be thinking much harder about and, um, and trying to, yeah, like you said, thinking creatively about it, it you know, could I, could I send my kid to the community college and they, they might want to do the stay, you know, go away from home and have the dorm experience or whatever. And, and that's fine. Rent them a, an apartment near the community college. And then at the end of the thing, give them, a, you know, $10,000 personally um, rather than giving that to, you know, some, some fancy college, uh, that is really a degree mill. You know, if you had to estimate it, how much of the value of college is in the actual educational content the kid is getting, like you said, maybe there's some also in the networking aspect. So, you know, is it 25%, um, is, of, of what you're paying for is the actual education. One of the ways to value it, I would say it's less. One of the ways to value that is how much of the money is actually going to the faculty, and, and the bookstore, you know, for example, or just like what the educational materials themselves. And if you look at that, you know, the average starting professor in the United States, I don't know if you know this, is making like $50,000 a year. Now that professor, you know, they did four years of college, then they did at least four, but probably more like 10 years of graduate school. So they're like early thirties and their first job, they're making $50,000 a year. Uh, and, and that's if they get the tenured job more likely they're an adjunct. They're making 25. And to contextualize that, um, $50,000 in like Southern California is much different than $50,000 in say um, West Virginia. Right. Because probably just to, to pay rent in Southern California and to live at, with a small family, you probably need 75,000. 
just to pay for rent. I mean, if it's 2,500 a month plus utilities or whatever, I don't know. That's like, I kind of made that number up, but I'm just kind of trying to contextualize. So that's, yeah, and, that's very and little. 50,000 50, is an average. And so the guy yeah. in West Virginia teaching at West Virginia state uh, or, you know, Evergreen mountain, I don't know, college, whatever, yeah. uh, they're not making 50,000, right? The, the no. 50,000 is an average, um, whatever it is, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a paltry sum. Uh, yeah. And a lot of your work is not teaching. A lot of it is all the things you have to do on the side, <laughs> all the right, right. training, all the, um, some administrative stuff, working through all the hoops, the kind of grading that you have to do, uh, making sure they're meeting, meeting standardizations according to accreditation. There's lots of hard work that some would argue, I don't know if you would, but some would argue is maybe not actually helpful for education. Now, accreditation is important, don't get me wrong, but sometimes you're just working so hard to meet these artificial standards that you're not necessarily able to meet the standards of an individual in your classroom that maybe needs something different. Well, Ephraim Radner, I don't know if you know him. Uh, so like, he actually just wrote a thing in uh, First Things on their, oh, I on saw their that. exclusive. You should put it in your, in your reading notes or whatever for the yeah. people who are on here. And, um, you know, he makes a compelling case that they're, okay, what's the point of accreditation, for example? The point of accreditation is to give so just like the, the university is going to give you a gold sticker for saying this kid did it, he did the thing, you know, he's, he's got the stuff. The accreditation institutions are giving a gold sticker to the, or, or maybe they're giving a sheet of stickers, right, to the institution saying you're allowed to hand out stickers. Um, but, but in the same way in which uh, higher education itself has sort of rotted out from the inside and that gold sticker doesn't really mean as much as it used to, um, uh, the, the accreditation institutions, you know, they're even worse. They're like, they're like a level beyond, um, they're staffed with, and I'm going to alienate people for the rest of my life here. They're staffed with, you know, like education majors from state schools that, um, that, that are operating on a, on a really, uh, vacuous theory of what a human is. Um, that is we can, we can just kind of set these little marks down. And when, if you tick off all the little boxes, then, okay, you, you as an institution are, are allowed to go handing out stickers. Um, it's a there's there's an utter lack of substance there um, that I think we ought to be very suspicious of. Um, you know, humans humans are not systems, so so I'm fine, and I actually like talking to you know my my sincere Marxist friends, and I have many. Uh, I live in the Bay Area about systems and how systems operate. I can think of higher education as a system, um, but humans are not themselves systems. And so when you when you reduce um, humans, you know, down uh, to to an algorithm, for example, which you're hearing a lot of people, you know, off, you know, your 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 mind is a computer, right? These these ways of talking. Um, uh, I I think you've you've gone off the rails in, in a fundamental sense, which which means like you know, if if I could revoke your right to hand out stickers, I would. Yeah, I I think that's massive, and it's interesting. Um... When you think about like the kind of newer model of education, uh, the Davenant Hall, Davenant Institute, and other groups like that, they are able, they don't, they're not accredited. Uh, and sometimes you want accreditation for the sake of state funding, right? Like, it's, oh, we need accreditation so we can get funding. But the problem with that cycle, as I see it, I might be wrong, you can correct me, is that you have to, inc you have to increase the cost of education with administrators, those who are forming things for accreditation for the sake of getting that state funding. And so you're, you're actually making your cost higher so you can get loans. But if you just brought it all down, you wouldn't need loans to attend because it might be like say $2,000 a year and you can work. And uh, you wouldn't need all those extra staffing people to, 
throw the cost up. So in a real sense, if, if you're going to give good education, it's not necessary to have accreditation nor the staff to make accreditation work. What's necessary, I think what you're saying, um, and we talked about the show for the interview a little bit, is to have professors who are able not only to educate, but also to think about how to structure and form education to reach out and talk with real people and to represent your institution. So uh, maybe can you talk about that a little bit? You're talking about Davenant Hall, like what you're trying to do with that. That's a new project that just this year, I think, came out. Yeah, I'm, I'm super tempted to go off on a, on a tangent and talk about, you know, whether or not state funding for higher education uh, is, makes sense or not. Um, and, and maybe for another time, I think theoretically you can make it work. Uh, yeah. And one of the things you hear from people is that one of the reasons why the student loan debt has gotten so bad is because states uh, and have stopped investing in higher education. Therefore, they have to make up the cost somewhere. They offload it onto the students. So if you're going to have education as a public good, higher education in particular, one of the questions you have to ask is, well, where's the money going to come from? And they've essentially just uh, reduced the tax basis. So you, taxpayers aren't paying for, for example, UC Berkeley to offer an education anymore. Um, instead, you're having the students themselves pay for it. Well, that's a wealth transfer from the older generations who are paying taxes to the younger generations who uh, in the future you hope to have paid taxes. So in some ways the governments are, are shooting themselves in the foot by taking these kids who they're hoping will be the taxpayers in the future and making it so they can't earn as much money and pay as much tax. Um, so I, I'm, I, I think that it's like possible to have state funding in higher education. Um, we at the Davenant Institute, I would say, are opposed to it uh, on, a, on a prudential level because of the current model, right? So uh, we, we are not accredited. Uh, we don't take state money. We don't want you to take out a loan to get your degree. Um, so at Davenant Hall, which is our new project, we launched it about a year ago. And it was kind of a, a trial balloon. We just wanted to see, are students interested in taking classes with us? Because previously, right, we, we publish you know, books. Uh, we do translation work at the Davenant Institute. We, we run summer uh, workshops. People will come for a couple of weeks. They'll read things. We'll run these seminars. Uh, we'll have reading groups in various places around the country where students will get together from various colleges. You want, you know, I want to read Dante and really think about what he's saying about Christianity and whether or not it makes sense. So you read the Divine Comedy together. But we had never run, um, you know, like a class per se. And certainly we hadn't been doing them online. So uh, we... We launched this trial balloon. We said if we had about 30 students by the end of the year, we'd consider it a success. And by the end of the year, you know, we'd, we'd had like five times as many uh, as we had expected. It, was, it took off, which was in part because of the coronavirus, um, which has exacerbated all these trends that we're talking about in education, right? Uh, any, anyone who's at home having to Zoom school their, their five-year-old who's in kindergarten knows there's something really strange happening with education in the United States right now. Um, we, we had actually created this thing uh, a year ago, you know, this month, like last summer, we created Davenant Hall. Uh, un, unbeknownst to us, a virus was descending, making everyone's education online. Um, so we're, we're offering these online courses and we just, we decided we, we really need to have a, a systematic way of thinking through this, um, which, is, which is based on a curriculum uh, that we think is going to empower and, and, and give students the capacity to engage in the Christian tradition uh, as, well as, as well as we can manage it. Uh, and we wanna do that not in a way where you're getting the, like I said, the 30,000 foot overview. You know, we don't wanna give you a survey 
course on all of uh, literature, we would rather put you in front of someone who we consider to be an expert on the subject matter and have you with them walking through what their expertise and their subject matter and their research project is, um, but in a way that obviously you're gonna be able to engage with. Uh, in our minds, you know, Davenant Hall came from us studying the history of higher education. You know, whether that's, um, whether that's the founding of Oxford and, and uh, you know, Paris and Cambridge, uh, which, you know, we've read the literature on that, or, or you can go even farther back and think about uh, ancient Athens uh, and, and read, you know, both Plato and, and Aristotle, but then people who are talking about what they were up to. Um, so we're, we're trying to recreate something like that. And I think it really is the solution to the crisis of higher education for a few reasons. So one, if you think about the economic, uh, the curriculum and the and the administrative thing. So the curriculum piece, I think I already talked about. Um, we're we're studying primary texts with scholars of those texts. Uh, as as Brad Littlejohn, the president Davenant says, we don't want you to be a theological. Uh, we we don't want you to be looking at a theological map. We want you to be a theological mountaineer. So we want you to actually have the experience of you know trying to ask hard questions and puzzle through things with people who are out there on the front lines. Um, and, and if you think from the administrative point of view, we just, we've made the decision we don't have any, any administrators. So anyone you interact with at Davenant Hall is gonna be a teacher at Davenant Hall. They're a scholar who we think is capable of doing that work. Um, and then from the economic point of view, we can offer a master's degree for about $8,000. It, it would take two years, um, but we want to make, make it revenue neutral. So, uh, We've made the decision that if you are a full-time student, uh, you get the degree for $8,000, you walk away with your master's, uh, and then if you then go on and finish your PhD, we give you a promissory note. And if you do finish your education, we're gonna give you all of your tuition back at the end. So rather than you walking away, the average, Saint, uh, the average um, seminary student enters seminary with $20,000 in educational debt. Uh, and then they, they leave with significantly more than that. Um, so rather than walking away with significantly more than $20,000 in debt, we would rather have you walk away with us being $8,000 indebted to you if you can, if you can go and prove your mettle uh, out there in the, in the wild waters of academia. It doesn't solve all the problems in higher ed, no, uh, but it's our, it's our attempt to try to have a stab at it. I mean, that's one, one of the things, too, like on the economy of scale, if you're all teaching, you can lower the cost to make it affordable to many more people and if you're doing at least most of it online, it can be anywhere, anytime, especially if you're working a job, you only have certain times, if you have a family. I honestly think it's the future. And like, I, I, was, I don't know if I told you during recording before, but it must have been before. Uh, I've been teaching since 2019 at Ryle Seminary, which is mm -hmm. Ottawa and Burlington up here. And it's, it's a similar thing. It's not accredited. Um, there is, there's like one administrative person there, but like the idea is everyone else is basically teaching. Like you just kind of take over. And uh, you're able to do it at a relatively affordable price if you wanted the ongoing education side of it. But I think you're actually given a, a broader vision. And I would probably say uh, one that has better prospects in the sense of you're saying all education is kind of equalized in terms of wherever you're on the spectrum of where you want to learn. It can be ongoing or like a full-time kind of student. But you're able to get education at an affordable rate that you can actually afford without loans because the staff is actually scholars and teachers, not administrators and so on. And yeah, you're not accredited, but that actually means that you don't have to put all the money into 
ensuring accreditation actually works. So I, yeah. I, I love what you're saying. And by the way, I should clarify, I don't think that means the quality is any lower. In fact, it may be higher because as a teacher, you have more time to do your kind of scholarly work and close reading of text because you're not worrying about all these sort of external standards that are uh, dehumanizing, as you noted earlier, they're check marks. So yeah, I, I mean, we're not accredited partially because uh, we've judged accreditation and found it wanting. So yeah. it, you know, it's like accreditation is a bit too stupid for us. We're not interested in it at the moment. I think it's possible, right, that we could find uh, sure. or found an accrediting institution which we think is worth engaging with. Um, but at the moment, you know, the I think, you know, if you start a college and, and your goal is accreditation, then your goal is not it's not the same goal as uh, offering the best education to the students who come. So our, our goal, particularly in the first few years, is just going to be, let's ignore everything else. We want to offer the absolute best education um, for, for uh, students. We want to form students really well. Um, we want to have them engage in the texts that we think are important. Once we've got that down, um, the value of the product is going to be able, you know, you, it, it'll show itself. Um, and then later on, we can, we can worry about whether or not we think we should be accredited or, or, or something along those lines. Uh, yeah, that's, I, I think that's right. And that's exciting. I like it. It makes a lot of sense. And again, yeah, there's no problem with accreditation as such, but I, I do think in, at least as the, in the current model, it's very helpful the way that you're doing things and things could change. Okay. So we said all this, so that's Davenant Hall. But just one other one yeah. other piece on that is, um, you know, one of the questions that we often get uh, is, well, how are you going to pay for this thing if if you're having these students, you know, if the students are paying us eight thousand dollars, then we're going to pay them eight thousand dollars on the back end, you know, um, like I, I think any sensible student who's listening to this or potential student should say, are you just a snake oil salesman, Colin? You know, um, we actually do have a plan. Uh, so the idea, the idea is, is, is a couple fold. So one, you know, not every student's going to go get their PhD. And so there will be some students who, who get our degree, you know, people who are, are plumbers, uh, you know, pastors, um, or, or just kind of folks out of college who want to come and study this stuff and then go on and do something else with their life. Uh, who, who are going to help pay for those people who do go on and then, and then uh, get their $8,000 back at the other end. Um, but beyond that, you know, we, we have to make a living too. Uh, so, so you think about the faculty at the Davenant Institute. Um, many of us have other, other jobs, so we're bivocational, but not all. Um, and the way that we manage to make it work is um, there's a guy uh, online who's, there's the, the you should really be following kind of the intellectual dark web and, and all these people who are doing this interesting stuff as online intellectuals. And uh, there's a whole world kind of opening up where people are realizing how, how ridiculous higher education is at the moment. And they're trying to experiment with what's the next model, what's the next thing. Uh, and so there's one guy, Justin Murphy, who uh, was just talking about how he's a full stack professor. Um, and what he means by that is he does all the different parts of what the university does. He, he recruits the students and teaches the students and then writes the letters of recommendation for the students and you know, all the way through. Um, well, we were thinking about that a year ago. Uh, one of the things we said when we started this is the way to make this work is you, you can't just, you can't um, solve the problem of higher education without breaking the model of higher education. So by breaking the model, I mean, if you think about how higher education has worked for the last 40 years, let's say, you do have the faculty, and that's what everyone thinks of, right? Everyone's an image of higher education is like um, Robin Williams from Goodwill Hunting. Uh, you know, 
sitting in his book lined study, you know, having hashing it out with students. It's not your fault, Will. It's not your fault. You know, these important conversations and then going and giving interesting little lectures. Um, but, but that's not the truth. The truth is, you know, most faculty don't have offices or they're sharing offices. They're, there's very little space for faculty to think, work, teach on campus. They're just a tiny, tiny bit of what's going on on campus. There's these huge other arms. So there's one arm that I would call the finance angle. Um, and yes, they are managing student loans. They're encouraging students to take out more loans. Uh, they're also hounding students and their parents to pay their tuition. Uh, and then also there's a huge portion of them that are out there raising money, doing development work, um, hitting up the alumni to, to just fork over more cash. Uh, and so that's why you see, you know, colleges, it's big business. Um, colleges make a lot of money. The other angle, so, you, so you've got the faculty, you've got the development angle, and then you've got the, um, what I call the recruitment and retention sector of higher education. So you've got these people who uh, are residence hall directors, you know, they're, they're the ones throwing a party when your freshman shows up on campus so that your, your freshman, you know, your little boy or girl who's going off to college feels good about being there. Um, they're, they're out there marketing the college, they're trying to draw students in. Once they're there, they're, they're trying to keep them there. They're the writing center and the math tutorial space and, and trying to make sure that the kid makes it uh, and doesn't leave, you know, the, the counseling center. So if you look before 50 years ago, this didn't exist. Like I said earlier, it was the faculty were doing all that stuff. Now they didn't always do it well, right? And, and that's fine, you know, maybe, maybe there is some sense in a specialist who's raising money is probably gonna raise more money than, than a faculty member. Um, but at Davenant Hall, we're, we're making this bet. It's, we wanna hire people, so when, when we have teaching fellows, these people who are professors, um, we wanna take that subset of people who have PhDs and can do the scholarly work, who also have the skills where they could have gone into recruiting and retaining students, right? They're, they're caring, they're helpful people, they're, they're not just kind of um, somebody who has the, the intellectual skills but lacks all social skills, for example, right? Um, they have to be able to recruit the students. And then they also need to be able to engage the broader community who might be interested in the project, right? And whether that's soliciting donations or just explaining what we do at the Davenant Institute, uh, we wanna make sure that they have those skills as well. So you find somebody in the middle of that diagram who's also an Orthodox Christian and we say, that's, that's one of our faculty. You know, that's the full stack professor, the person who can, and, and full stack comes from coding. Uh, so in, in coding language, I, I'm in near Silicon Valley, the full stack coder, right? They can do everything from building the computer to uh, the end design of the, of the program. They can do everything in between. We want faculty who can do all those things and, and that creates a really anti-fragile institution. So uh, we, we can afford to basically give you your education for free because these people are gonna be able to engage a donor network who say, Davenant Institute, I really want you guys forming young minds because I don't want you know, these, these other institutions which I think are, are either you know, ideologically or economically corrupt and corrupting to be the things that are forming young minds for the sake of the future of the church. Um, and we think those donors are out there and we've, we've met a significant number of them who are, who are basically just giving to us because they say, you're the people who we want, um, you know, reading Plato with some kid rather than having them read something else at, at some other place and going into debt for it. I think that's helpful. And the vision you're casting, I think is appealing. I think people who are invested in education want their kids to be educated well can see the value in that. So it makes sense that some people would want to donate, whether that's 10 bucks a month or 10,000 bucks a year. 
um, into different levels of your ability. So, okay, I like There's that. Only two levels we accept. So you guys have yeah, to Yeah, 10 bucks a month or 10,000 a year. So, <laughs> no, I, I, I get that. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And I think partly that's the future. You want parents or those interested in education to take an investment by supporting you directly so yeah. that you can, as you noted, support students because those who want their money back, as it were, can pursue further education, complete a PhD or whatever. And they're not in debt. In fact, they're able to get a little bit of a, what you call that a promissory note? They you get a promissory note. That's what you're promissory doing. note. Yeah. Promissory note that it has value. You know? Monopoly money that can become real money. Um, so yes. I think that's entirely valuable and I love that vision. So, you know, maybe, I, maybe we'll actually do that and just give them monopoly money. Yeah. Here's $8,000. Money. We'll transfer it into uh, you know, real us dollars at the end. Yeah, it's funny, the things you've been saying, because on my own, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I've been talking to some people, but everything you're saying really jives. I think it has to be like this. It has to be affordable. Uh, it has to be with real scholars. It has to have, like, close reading. Of, like, close reading of text is so important. Um, and you shocked how little it happens anymore. You know, right. you have these kids who take a, a course on British literature, and, you know, they, they're reading some British literature, but they're mostly reading the secondary sources explaining right. the British literature to them. And, and, the, and then they leave and you leave this course and, and the students, because they've read so much over the course of one semester, they've actually read so little. Um, and this is to say nothing of the actual amount students are reading anymore, which is, which is a fraction of what gets assigned. It always has been, but of course we've been assigning less and less. Right. They're, and they're still reading only 10% of it. Um, but I, what I say is, you know, students who walk away from that survey course, which we're trying not to offer, um, they walk away and, uh, you know, they often get stuck with like a meme rather than learning anything about the text itself. They, they just kind of have like, a, here's the stock phrase I know that I'm supposed to say about British right. literature, uh, rather than actually knowing anything right. about any British literature. No, that's important. So this fall I'm teaching, a, or I'm slated to teach a church history course, and all of the textbooks are original. I mean, they're translated, but the original sources that we're reading together. So I yep. give like, a, I'll probably give like a half an hour overview because you do need that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm the secondary source, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I would recommend lots of secondary sources. I'm not trying to say it's unimportant, but our course itself is all the actual people we're studying. <laughs> so read yeah. through probably Irenaeus and all these people because you need to read them closely and think about what they mean by their own words in the world in which they lived and I think that's for the sake of spiritual vitality. So I, I'm pretty positive to the, um, I guess, an English retrieval movement is the kind of more common. What yeah, we call I mean, it? The, yeah, retrieval movement. Is that what we call it? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you can call it a retrieval movement. Is there some, uh, uh, I don't know if you know Eric Hutchinson at Hillsdale College. Well, I don't know him personally. Like on Twitter, I know him. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he he's, he's a hero of mine. He's a friend. Uh, and, you know, he uncovered, uh, and he's not the only one. Um, W.H. Uh, Auden has this famous course that he taught, which is just insanely hard with tons of reading. Um, and he uh, is, is he's attempted to get people to try to read. And it was considered hard at the time, right, when he taught it, which was, you know, 50 years ago now uh, in higher ed. Um, and he's attempted to kind of like recreate it and, and get students to read at that level. And I've shown that syllabus, like this is, you know, to my students in the Great Books Program, this is what students would have read, you know, at least in a hard version. I'm considered a hard professor at my, at St. Mary's College. I'll tell them, you know, you might think I'm hard. This is what was considered the hard professor, you know, at, at uh, University of Michigan, I think it was, you know, back in the 1950s. 
And they, it just, you know, it's mind boggling the amount of primary source reading. Uh, and then who's the secondary source? It's Auden, you know. And if right. you want to create a WH Auden, uh, if you want to create, um, you know, uh, uh, another C.S. Lewis, uh, you have to go back and, and just hammer and tongs away at those sources. Oh, it makes sense. Now, again, I would say recommend secondary sources from the library, from Amazon, whatever you want. But I think it makes the reason why these are classical texts is because they stand, they stood the test of time. You know, they're great. That's why they're around typically or significant is a better way to put it sometimes. Whereas a lot of newer works, like you don't know where they'll be in 10 years. And so why would you spend 30 hours reading something that you're unsure of? Again, as a recommendation, a supplement for sure but as a primary work for course is what I'm kind of getting at. So I love that. Yeah, I, um, go on. When I talk about uh, great books, uh, you often think about the difference between great versus good books. So if, when I say, well, this is a great book, that's a good book. People think I'm saying the good book is a bad book. And it's like, well, no, that's, I'm not saying a good book is a bad book. I'm saying it's a good book, but it's not great. So I, I think, I think a, a, a real education ultimately is a, uh, a process whereby we attune our eyes to be able to see the world in finer and finer detail. Um, and, and so one of the things that hopefully you're able to do after you've really been educated well is to be able to look around the world and, and see the world more clearly, uh, not less clearly. That's the goal, uh, is this attunement to reality. Um, and, and so, you know, if, if you're attuned to reality, you, you can kind of see, okay, well, here's somebody who's really dealing with something fundamental. Um, and that's why all these other scholars go to them and think about them and why it's worth you cutting your teeth on them. Um, now, when you first go to Plato, you know, I've, I've had the experience of reading C.S. Lewis with, with sometimes, you know, progressive evangelical friends or, or non-Christian friends. And they'll say, I don't see the value here. I don't, I don't get it. Um, and I'm kind of sympathetic to it, but, but you realize, um, Oftentimes it's because people haven't had to cut their teeth on something that's, that's, um, that's attempting to do this process of, of training your eyes to be able to see. Um, yeah, you're dull until you've actually had to work through the fundamentals of what you assume. Yeah. You, you need to see clearly. Um, I like all the things you're saying. Uh, I think we've covered crisis education. We talked about friendship and Augustine, which is clearly very important. Unplanned, but very enjoyable. The Davenant Hall, um, to get, I can put in the show notes, I'll put the URL in there, but I think it's like davenantinstitute.com or something like that, right? Dot org. And all that stuff. So what is it? Dot org. Davenant org. org. Yeah. But if you Google Davenant Institute, it's not like we're competing with a lot of people for that space. No. Also, I don't think anyone actually, like, I don't type in websites. I Google, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, yeah. now sometimes I guess I do. I mean, you have favorites and stuff, so... They can look that up. Don't, don't alienate your boomer listeners, okay, man? Sorry, right, you're right, you're right. Now, some people, I still do if I know it, if I want to go to like whatever website. So I guess it's true. Um, kind of talk, I guess we really did talk about the goal of education. That was one thing we said we wanted to go through. But could you summarize, if you're a Davenant student, you do your two years mas to your um, master's degree through you, what do you want to make of someone? What should they become through education? Yeah, so, so, if theology is uh, related, closely related to philosophy, how closely depends on who you're talking to. Um, I would say they're very close. Uh, Aristotle talks about how uh, metaphysics, um, theology, first philosophy, those terms are interchangeable to him. 
Um, I think a, the goal of education in, in the architectonic sense, uh, if you're looking at it as a whole, is about the formation of a person. Uh, when Plato and Aristotle talk about the education of the young, they talk about um, teaching them what they ought to love, uh, helping them to have an orientation to the world where they know what is good and tasteful and what is bad and distasteful. Um, when, when you're talking about adult education, I, it, is, it is a bit of that. It's, uh, it's also um, helping people to grow in their capacity to, as I said, see the world and, and wonder at it. Um, giving people the skills of closely reading texts that are quite difficult, um, having conversations uh, which are focused and uh, not, and where it's not apparent where the conversation is going to lead. You know, is there, are there a set of tools that you can have where you can trust yourself in that conversation? Um, you know, is there going to be a job payout on the other end of it? Um, I don't know. Uh, but, but, you know, if, if every institution of higher education in the world right now is telling you, is screaming at you with big neon lights, come to our thing, you'll get a job on the other side of it. You know, at least some of these people are lying to you. So I, I kind of want to be the person, but I'm, I'm told by my boss, I'm not supposed to say this, come to the Davin Institute. We're completely useless. Um, you won't get a job, kid. Uh, but, but of course, that's not entirely true. I, it, I think the goal of it, in, in terms of what would it train you to do, it would train you to go and teach, uh, particularly in a Christian context, uh, whether that's in your church as a layperson, as a pastor in a pulpit, um, as a missionary, uh, or, or in like a classical Christian school. I think it would definitely equip you uh, in those places. Uh, and, and aid you or, or to go on and, and finish your education. But I really think it's the kind of thing people are already doing for its own sake. You know, the number of students we have that are currently pastors, missionaries, um, you know, informed lay people who are coming to us because they're, they're saying to themselves, I'm teaching stuff and I need to have some space where I can work out these hard ideas with people I can trust. Uh, and so they're coming to us as, as a way of doing that. If you're looking at the goal of education in general, so as a as a guy who's into the ancient Greeks, I'll end with this, um, <clears throat> unless you have more questions, but uh, people often forget that the Plato's allegory of the cave, really famous, you know, you got these guys that are trapped in the cave and then um, there's a fire behind them and then there's somebody who, and they're chained down, they're looking at the wall and they're seeing the shadows projected by the fire onto the cave and they're guessing at what those shadows are. It's a duck, it's a bird, you know, it's a plane. And then they're clapping for each other. Um, and then of course, you know, he, he's questioning, well, what would it be like if one of them broke their chains and got up outside of the cave and saw what the world was really like? Oh my gosh, that's a real bird. The, the thing we thought was a bird is just a shadow. Holy, you know, wow. Um, well, that whole conversation, which, you know, there's so much more there than we could even ever talk about. You know, it would take us a whole other hour to even begin the conversation of what the point of the allegory of the cave is. But at least ostensibly, when you get to the end of it and you read the commentary between Socrates, uh, and his interlocutors, the people he's talking to, he says, that's supposed to tell us something about education. So education somehow is like, you know, breaking the, the chains and getting up out of the cave and seeing reality. Um, and at Davenant, you know, that's what we're trying to do. We, we wanna give people the capacity to, to really engage in that level of thinking, uh, which I think currently, you know, um, not all, but much of higher education in the U.S. is kind of doing the opposite. It's like it's like there's a hole in the bottom of the cave, and you can kind of drop down there, and there's just no fire. There's nothing, <laughs> and and so you know, 
um, people are people are kind of wandering around in the cave of higher education, and then they're falling in this hole and, and feeling like, what in the world did I just do? I have $50,000 in debt, and I don't know anything, uh, and I can't get a job. Um, but we want to return to that older image of, of getting you out. I like it. That's helpful. And I think I, I just for me as like a practical uh, example, as a father, I want to know how to educate my kids, not only for the sake of getting a job, but how to be a good person. Yeah. How to reason morally about the world around them, how to make decisions, how to be wise. And one of the things I think a father does is, is teach wisdom and wisdom is not found merely in my mind. What's well, not really found in my mind at all uh, at, yeah. the, at the, at the get go anyway. Um, I'm not remembering it. You're I like Aristotle. Uh, you are learning it through engaging with text and with engaging with text is just talking with someone, right? Yeah. Learning from yeah. a wise person went before you and was able to write and communicate what he or she thought. And so I think it's imminently practical. And also if you look, this is a whole different talk, but if you look at learning outcomes or life outcomes for those with good fathers, present fathers versus those without present fathers, it's massively different. And therefore I think as a parent, it's so important for me to think about my four-year-old, my one-year-old. How do I want them to live? What kind of life do I want them to have? I don't necessarily care what job they have per se. I mean, I want them to have a good job, but, but I want them also to live well, to enjoy life, to have friends, to have family, to make the best of it, to live a flourishing life. And therefore, education, I think, can have a very practical value. If you're a parent, get more education. Think through it for yourself so you can transmit it down to your children. Which again, I know it's a little bit of an aside, but for me, I just, I always kind of go to like, okay, how can I, how can I do it? <laughs> I mean, I think everybody with school age kids is asking themselves what the point of education is right now. Um, yes. Because Zoom, <laughs> Zoom classrooms, which do kind of work. So there is an in-person component. If you get your degree at Davenant, you spend your summers at our, at our house, uh, Davenant house with professors, but most of it is going to be online. Um, but man, online education, which works in a way for an adult who's already formed the habits of self-control and, you know, studiousness, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work for your kindergarten or your, your first or second grader. So I think we're, we're seeing that stuff in, in real time. Mm. Thanks for this conversation, Colin. I appreciate it. I think it was helpful. It's good to hear about education. It's exciting to hear about the Davenant Hall and what it's trying to do. And I'm sure we'll have another time to chat again about Aristotle and friendship, maybe when you're yeah. finished your dissertation or something. Yeah, awesome. Uh, good to talk to you, Wyatt. Thanks so much for having me.